Last week we began a series on the subject of Isaiah and salvation and we're considering the prophecies in the book of Isaiah that have to do with the Christ child. And we looked at the first of these in chapter 7 concerning a virgin who would give birth to a son who would be identified as Emmanuel, the meaning of which means God with us. A phenomenal assurance to King Ahaz that the kingdom of Judah, over which he ruled, could not possibly be annihilated by the threatening northern alliance because Christ was to come through his royal line and through the tribe of Judah. We're trying some things this morning. We have a map of Aram, uh, sometimes called Syria. Jared's going to show that. It's up there, and you can see Judah's down in the purple, and so Israel in green has allied itself with Aram, and they are threatening to come down south and wipe out Judah. Looks pretty ominous from King Ahaz's viewpoint. But God sent Isaiah to King Ahaz and said, Don't be afraid. Trust. Have faith in God. So today we continue with Isaiah's look at the Messiah by considering what he has to say in the ninth chapter about the infant who becomes a child, the destined ruler of the people of God. That brings us then in your bulletin outline to the promised prince. The first thing I want to do is to look at somewhat at the prophetic uh, pattern that's used, not only by Isaiah, but by many of the prophets in the Old Testament. And you need to get this pattern down because it really flows throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Let's note this pattern that Isaiah uses and others use as well. We left off last week's lesson with the understanding that although God called wicked Ahaz to live by faith and to trust God, you'll find that in chapter 7 verse 9, instead he trusted in his own secret alliance with Assyria. And that's slide number 2. Assyria, not Syria. Sometimes Syria is called Aram, and that's what we've noted that. The Assyria is something different, and Jared has that up. Look at that empire. It's all in purple there. And Ahaz, this is his ace in the hole. Syria, or Aram, might have allied itself with Israel. We just looked at that on the previous slide. But I have Assyria on my side, and they're above Israel and Aram. So let come what may, I have the Assyrians on my side. Well, he wasn't trusting God, was he? And guess what? Because of this lack of faith in God, God promised judgment, and here's the judgment. Isaiah 7, verse 17 the Lord will bring on you, Ahaz, and your people, what? The king of Assyria. 
The very one, you see, that he was trusting in to deliver him from Israel would be the one to threaten his own kingdom. And by the way, we skipped over it, but Isaiah 8, the entire chapter, is a detailed prophecy of the upcoming Assyrian invasion, which was destined to swallow up Damascus, the capital of Syria, and all the northern tribes of Israel, and like a flooded river, overflows its bank and rush even to the very neck of Judah. So, instead of deliverance from Assyria, Assyria becomes Ahaz's worst nightmare. Now, the reason for this judgment from God is clearly stated in chapter 8, verse 19 and following. When men tell you to consult mediums, and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead, that is the spiritually dead, idols, the occult, the practitioners, and so on, on behalf of the living, to the law, to the testimony? What he's saying is, God's word, that's where you should go to get your insight. If they, the counselors, the advisors, do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. He is saying their insight is not even enough light to begin the journey. Dawn is that, you know, that, that little light that comes in the morning. But he's saying if you're not going to talk Take, take advice and counsel from God's word. They don't even have the light of dawn. They don't have that gray light that comes in early morning. So, as chapter 9 begins, Isaiah says, Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Now, this is the pattern to which I alluded earlier. The prophecies of Isaiah, indeed the promises of God, are structured in this way. Because Israel, God's people, do not consult with him in making life's decisions, but instead consult with the occult world of spiritists and mediums and witches and warlocks and all of those kind of things, and they pray to idols instead of the living God, the Lord brings upon them judgments of various severity. And oftentimes, as in the case of King Ahaz, he brings the nation whose very idols and pagan superstitions that he trusted in. And that nation or people becomes the avenger of God, the Lord's own instrument to humble his people for their unbelief. Yet, and this is important, yet God's judgment stops short of annihilation. This is the pattern. That's the meaning of the word nevertheless in our opening verse. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And that's our third slide as showing here these particular, uh, see Zebulun way at the top, and Naphtali, and the Sea of Galilee. That's 
what he's talking about. In the past, these people were in trouble and God humbled them. Nevertheless, you see, there is no mercy in the judgment of men. In the judgment of men, it's killing, it's annihilation, it's utter destruction. These are ever the methods of men of war. But with God and all of his judgments, they are tempered with mercy. 2 Samuel 24, verse 14, when David sinned by numbering his fighting men, yes, David, godly king, but he got out of whack with God. He numbered his men with the ideas, I need to count my soldiers. I need to see who's in the armed forces. I need to see how, how ready we are for warfare. An action that God considered an effrontery to his own protective power. And so God was going to bring judgment upon David. And David was given three options of punishment from which to choose. And God sent a prophet to David to tell him about the options. And here was David's response. He said to Gad the prophet, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Yeah. David knew something about God that we should all know. In Psalm 30, verse 5, also written by David, he says of God, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain in the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Nehemiah, the prophet of the post-exilic Israelites who were carried off into captivity, by the Babylonians, describe Israel's rebellion and God's response. And here's what he says. For many years you, God, were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Nehemiah 9, verse 30 and 31. And Isaiah says to us all, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. What all this tells us, brethren, is that there is a way of recovery for sinners, for those who anger God, and that way is through repentance. Notice what he says. Forsake the evil, that's repentance, and faith. Let him turn to the Lord. There's the faith. Which, of course, implies that such a person has not had much to do with God in the past. Turn from the evil, turn to the Lord. A new beginning is possible with God. How so? You stop what you're presently doing. You turn away from it. And you begin anew by believing and acting upon the word of God. You stop trying to run your own life and do your own sinful thing. And you start with repentance 
as well as faith. I could put it this way, that God stands poised, ready to forgive, ready to freely pardon, because he is, in Isaiah's word, or Nehemiah's words, a gracious and merciful God. Nehemiah 9, verse 31. Well, this is what we have in our text. When Israel forsook God by trusting in the counsel of the occult practitioners, they went into spiritual darkness, not possessing even so much as the light of dawn. Chapter 8, verse 20. Isaiah talks about gloom. Chapter 9, verse 1 of our text. People walking in darkness, verse 2. Of people living in the land of the shadow of death, also verse 2. Wow. Gloom, darkness, shadow of death. But no more. Because of the mercy of God, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light, verse 2, has dawned. And this light comes from Galilee of the Gentiles, that region of Palestine, that's that slide we had up there before, the region of Palestine previously occupied by the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. This light will bring joy and rejoicing like men who are victors, not losers, verse 3 of our text. The burdens of captivity will be shattered, verse 4. The sounds and atrocities of war will be destined for burning, verse 5. How so? Because to us, a child is born and a son is given. That's why. Verse 6. Now, that brings us then, this is the promise, this brings us then to prophetic fulfillment. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the prophecy of Isaiah here refers to Jesus as that Christ child. Because the shepherds were told today... In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, Luke 2, verse 11. And Matthew, following the life of this child in his biography, tells us of the adult Jesus. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Yeah, it was near, all right. It was right at their door. Matthew 4, 13 through 17. You remember at Jesus' trial that Pilate ascertained at that trial that Jesus was a Galilean. And that's why he sent him to Herod to kind of resolve the case. Herod listened to Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. And I don't know if you know this, but... Most of Jesus' ministry was not, listen now, was not in Judah around Jerusalem. It was in Galilee. 
in the land of Naphtali, in the land of Zebulun, around the Sea of Galilee. That's where most of his ministry transpired. Yeah, he got down to Jerusalem, and he had some ministry there as well. Bethany and places of that nature. And of course, he was uh, arrested there and uh, put on trial there by Pilate and so on. But his ministry was in the north. Well, what about this child who became a man? What did Isaiah prophesy of him? Well, that he would be a Galilean. Yeah, okay, but what else? Well, that's what comprises the rest of our study this morning. I want us to look at the royal prince. First thing I direct your attention to is that he had a humble beginning. Isaiah says he is a child born. He is a son that's given. But as you might guess, this is no ordinary child. We cannot forget last week's account in chapter 7 verse 11. These prophecies are related to each other. The one builds on the other until we get the whole picture. And that text says the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so the child born and the son given in our text, chapter 9, verse 6, is none other than the virgin's child. Whoever heard of a virgin giving birth to anything? And the name Emmanuel adds further mystery for who among men can rightly claim to be God? I know there's some, some guys that have done that through history. And, and where are they? They're dead and gone. So much for their deity. But Isaiah speaks of this child that is born, the son given, as he who is, verse 6 of our text, the mighty God. And so that concurs with the title Emmanuel in chapter 7 verse 11. And by this we know what Isaiah is predicting here. He is saying to Israel, and in the larger context to all of mankind, God is coming among you. Sent or given as a son. Even more, God intends to become one with us. A child born. God becoming a man? Really? Yes, and there's great, great humility here. Man, as the scriptures rate him among created beings, was, and I'm reading scripture, created a little lower than the heavenly being. Psalm 8 verse 5. Hebrews 2 7 says lower than the angels. And then you understand for God's son to be born as a man he too was, and I'm reading scripture, Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2 verse 9. Why so? Because angels don't die. You not see that in scripture. Angels don't die. Men die. God's son was made a man, which made him vulnerable to execution, vulnerable to death. There's a reason for this elaborate plan of God, and nothing here is insignificant. But make no mistake about it. While God's Son was willing to become 
come to this earth as a man in obedience to the Father's plan, his coming involved great humility. Think of it. The one whom Paul says was the firstborn over all creation, who by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible things. Yeah, nuclei, electrons, atoms, gases, even those things you can't see. Whether thrones or powers or authorities, all things were created by this Jesus and for him. Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. So this divine being, this creator being, chose to become a human being. The creator, a part of creation. The one who made angels agreed to be made lower than they. Philippians 2, verse 6 and following is the great text on this condescension. Let me read it. Who, speaking of of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be retained or held on to, but made himself nothing, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I can tell you right now that the very reason why we love this passage in Isaiah is the very reason people of the world hate this passage. Namely, they do not believe Isaiah when he talks about this child being the mighty God come among us or Emmanuel in chapter 7. Say Jesus is a prophet. We can live with that. Say he was a good and honorable man. We can live with that. Say he has, was a great moral teacher. We can live with that. But don't say that he was God's son. Jesus tells us the nature of this animosity. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, They would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father. He's referring to God as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles and they have hated both me and my father. They hated me. Without reason. John 15, verse 22 and following. There is a built-in sinful bias in men as to why they will not acknowledge this child in Isaiah as God's son come among us. And it is because if he is truly the mighty God, they cannot ignore him. They cannot downplay his teaching. They cannot dismiss his life. They cannot disavow his ministry. They cannot escape him. If he is God, they will meet him someday. They will have to answer to him someday. And they will be judged by him. They will be called into account of what they have done with him since he has invaded time-space history. 
I warn all of us here, these prophecies of Isaiah reach out into our day and they say to us in no uncertain terms, a child is born, a son is given, hear him, hear him. I would say that we should not allow the humbleness of the human likeness that he assumed to cloak the true nature of his person. The world has blinders on, self-imposed blinders through sin, satanic blinders. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, The God of this age, he's speaking of Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They don't see that. They don't see it because Satan doesn't want them to see it. So what I'm saying is do not allow the light which God shines in the darkness for people to see. Don't allow that to be hidden from your sight. There's a hymn in our old trinity uh, written by Philip Bliss. And it says this. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light, tis shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. Great humility. Let's not allow his... Humility to hide who he really is. And that's the second point here. Not only does Isaiah speak of this child's humility, but he speaks of his exaltation. And he uses a number of titles for the child which shows his uniqueness. I'm calling this in my message the royal markers. Isaiah gives us some royal markers concerning this child. The child's true identity. Firstly, he is a king. Look at verse 6, the latter part. The government will be on his shoulders. Wait a minute. This child, this son, government's going to eat? Yes. This tells us that the child is of royal blood. He is a king. He's a prince at birth. He's destined to be the head of state. Now, just in case you didn't know it, the concept of boy kings is not foreign to Isaiah nor to Oriental culture in general. The kings that we've been looking at in some of the genealogies had their beginnings as boys or very young adults. For example, Azariah. Azariah was 16 when he assumed the throne of Judah. 2 Kings 15 verse 1. In our world, we'd say, well, he's not yet an adult. 16. Okay. Ahaz, whom we studied last week, was only 20 when he became a king. 2 Kings uh, 16 and verse 1. Hezekiah was 25. His son Manasseh was 12. 2 Kings 21 verse 1. And Josiah 
was only eight years old when he became king over Judah. Chapter 22, verse 1. Yet, here's what we read about Josiah, boy king, age 8. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In other words, not distracted from being a righteous king. When our Lord was born, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem asking this question of Herod. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Jesus was born king. He came into this world born in Judah's royal line as to human ancestry of David's lineage. But since Isaiah says that he was a son given, his origin predates the Jerusalem and the Bethlehem of Bible times. As king, boy or not, Isaiah speaks of the government being on his shoulders. This is certainly more than David's kingdom, which at this point in history was concentrated only in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Verse 7 states, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The Magi called him the king of the Jews. But John describes him as king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 19. Verse 16. So the first royal marker is that he was born a king. Secondly, Isaiah identifies him as wonderful counselor. That Jesus thought of himself as a counselor is clear from his parting words to the disciples just hours before his crucifixion. Here's what he said. I will ask the Father and he will give you Another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. John 14, verse 16. I've been your counselor. I'm leaving, but I'm praying to the Father, and the Father will give you another counselor, and this counselor will never leave you. He's the spirit of truth. Now wonder and awe surround everything that can be said about Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They are all wonderful and they're removed far beyond human manipulation. And his counsel is wonderful too. For in Christ is the fullness of the Godhead, the scripture says, in bodily form. Paul tells us that Christ has become for us Wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. There's no mystery of life unknown to Christ. There's no hardship he is not equipped to advise. There's no instruction he's deficient in. There's no know-how that has eluded his perception. There is no uncharted waters that surprise him or mystify him. He's a wonderful. Through psychology and the social sciences, men believe that their own expertise, their own know-how, is all we need to solve our problems. 
Education is held up as the answer to men's ills. But the wisdom of men is foolishness with God. And the Bible says, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. I'm reading scripture. And the weakness of God, if you want to think of that, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25. Not only so, but God has determined to shame the wisdom of the humanly wise and to nullify those things in which men boast. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there's no God. You see, it isn't wisdom which denies God's person. It isn't wisdom which denies God's work in the world of men. It is wicked stupidity. How could we look upon the universe? How could we look upon the stars and the constellations and the beauty of creation, the intricacy of the human body, and on and on it goes, and not believe in a divine creator? The message to us is that in Christ is one who is the wonderful counselor, full of wonder. His counsel, his comfort, his wisdom, his remedies for life's problems are all at your disposal by faith. And he invites you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. There it is. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11. Verse 28 and 29. You can read many, many books on various themes, but it will all be, as Solomon said, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole Duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, 13. And Solomon would know something, would he not, about human wisdom, human philosophy. And if you read a book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see that he studied everything. Botany, zoology, a lot of the other ologies. He had a scientific mind. He says, I've read it all and I've done it all and I'm weary. And the conclusion is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's your whole duty. All the book learning in the world isn't going to help you there. Study this book for the Bible brings to us the wisdom of the wonderful counselor. The wisdom of God himself. Third, Isaiah calls him Mighty God, or the God of might. The ancient world, as in our own day, had a plethora of gods, but all of them were and are impotent. Nothing mighty about them. How pitiful to see on television and to know that throughout our world today, it is no different than what Isaiah describes of the idols of the nations to which Israel in great sin gave its allegiance. Let me read it for you from Isaiah 2. They are full of superstition from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines 
and claps hands with pagans. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands to what their fingers have made. Isaiah 2, verse 6 and following. How stupid, but that's what people do. And I would say that this is America. And this may be you. When you construct God as you want him to be and refuse to accept him as he discloses himself to be in the Bible, then you reshape God and you fabricate an idol. But Christ is the mighty God. You do not make him. He makes you. You do not analyze him. He analyzes you. You do not call him into question. He calls you to give an account for the light that he has given you. And may I say that men prefer their idols over God, but God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. He's the mighty God. There's only one God. The idols of the nation are false. And then the fourth marker that Isaiah gives concerning this child, the son given, is the phrase translated in NIV, everlasting father, which is not to be construed as God the Father. From eternity there has ever been a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one God revealed in three persons in the Trinity. The Hebrew here helps us because the text actually says that this child is the father of eternity. Wow. It's a Hebraism, a figure of speech used to point out ownership. And there are many such expressions in the Bible. Father of strength means Allah, strong. Okay, so you get that. Father of knowledge means wise. Father of glory means glorious. Thus, father of eternity means eternal. This child, though having his place in time and space because of his being given for that purpose, is not to be understood by us as having his beginning as a person in Bethlehem. That's where the world gets it wrong. No, he is the eternal one. He is the father of eternity. He existed before time. When there was only God in Trinity. Let me read it for you. In the beginning was the Word, writes John. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John 1 verse 1. Did you know that time is a created reality? It didn't exist before God created it. Time has to do with temporalness, the here, the now. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a thousand years ago or 20,000 years ago. Time is still, there's a place in the universe when time wasn't there. The only ones that were there was the eternal God. 
And Isaiah's point to us is that this child, born a king, whose government is on his shoulders, will not be relinquishing his throne through illness, through dispossession by another rival, nor by death. No, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, verse 7, from that time on and forever. Wow. It's similar to the writer of Hebrews' description of Jesus as our priest, as our priest in contrast to human priests. Here's what he writes. There have been many of those priests, speaking of the human priests of the Old Testament, since, here's why, death prevented them from continuing in office. That makes sense, doesn't it? They died off, so there had to be many of them being born, coming up and being taught of the priesthood order and so on. He goes on, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Yeah, and a permanent kingship too. That's our God. That's our Savior. He is the Father of eternity. And then finally Isaiah calls this coming child the Prince of Peace. Boy, I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? As God Almighty, he has the power to keep the peace in his kingdom. But he does more. He creates peace. He becomes our peace. The turmoil and consternation which is in your life is due to sin. Sin in you or sin others in others who you have dealings with. But Christ comes with forgiveness of sin. He comes with healing in his wings, the scripture says. He comes with victory over death, which is the wages of sin. When we look at our world, the world in which we live is anything but peaceful. It's full of anger. It's full of hatred. And it's full of bloodshed. War and conflict are everywhere, just as it was predicted to be in the end times. And America, no less than Israel, is engaged in a great struggle. Isaiah 17, verse 12, puts it this way. Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, they roar like the roaring of great waters. Well, that's our society, that's our world. Not a little of the raging is directed towards God or God's people. Erected in Times Square, they had it on Fox News this week, is a billboard put up by the atheists saying, you do not need Christ in Christmas. See? Out in California, a cross that was erected after World War II as a memorial to the soldiers, the Ninth District Court, has ordered that that cross has to be removed within 90 days. Why? Because it is sitting on government-owned property. War against Christ and his people. But the psalmist asks this question. Here it is. Why do the nations rage? Simple. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, the Christ. That's what his name means, by the way. Christ means the anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs because he's already enthroned his son and grants him his, his desire. What? What's the desire? Ask of me, God the Father says, and I will make the nations your inheritance. I'll give them to you as a present. Oh, uh, uh, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. That is those rebellious and those obstinate. So that's why the raging is in vain. There's a better way, and the psalmist says it. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And then this last phrase, which I love. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What's it going to be for you? Christ ruling in your life as peace giver or Christ ruling as judge? What's it going to be for you? This child, this is the son given. It's God's son. And from all of eternity, God planned that his son would be the answer to our sin and our sinful world. Restoration is coming. It's only going to come through Jesus, this victorious, mighty God. I hope and pray you're among his family. You can be turning away from your sin and trusting in who and what he is. Our Lord, we thank you for your word today and pray your blessing upon it. Stir our hearts to love this son that you've given, this child that's been born. Thank you, dear Christ, for being willing to empty yourself, as we read in Philippians, of your glory, to empty, or not your glory, but to, to empty yourself of your favored position in heaven. And to become like a servant, made in human likeness, made a little lower than the angels, made vulnerable to death so that you could die for your people's sins. May we put our trust in you. We anticipate your coming again. And that's not pie in the sky. This prophecy in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 came true concerning your first coming though written 700 years before the event. And so we look to those same prophecies in Isaiah and other scriptures concerning your second coming to also come true in your, in your good time, in your day. John says, writing in his epistle, Brethren, it is the last hour. We are in the last hour before Christ's coming. May we be ready.
Thank you, dear Jesus, for your great condescension. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for sacrifice for us. Deal with the sinners of our country. Bring the gospel message to their hearts that they might repent and believe while there is still time. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. And in his holy name, amen.